All right. Hey, over the last few weeks, we've actually been in this sermon series called The Church We Hope For. And we've actually been exploring what are the values that over and against the values of our city or kind of the world around us, what are the values that we hope distinctly mark who we are or who we aspire to be? So we've talked about values like authenticity and community and diversity and generosity. And last week, Jordan talked about the value of delight. Today, we're going to talk about this uh, theme of renewal. And what does renewal look like? And I thought we would start actually from a scripture that most people point to um, when we talk about this Christian vision for renewal. Now, some of you who aren't Christians here, welcome. So glad you made it. Um, You get an insight into how do Christians want to be uh, a people who are contending for a kind of renewal in our society. So check this out. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Now, here's the thing about the book of Revelation, just to give you some context. Revelation is a book. It's actually a revelation from God. It's a vision that's given to a person named John. The early church, if you know anything about the history of the church, Jesus was actually a Jewish carpenter from an oppressed people group. So if you think about it, the world power at that time was Rome. Rome was, had the biggest military up to that point in human history, had the most expansive, powerful rule and reign over that entire region. So Jesus is this no-name Jewish carpenter who somehow emerges claiming to be the son of God. Now, I want you to get this sense then. The early Christian movement is marked then by a people who are used to being underdogs, oppressed underdogs who are easily going to be snuffed out. In fact, if you look at the kind of the journey of the early church, Christians in those early days, they were persecuted, their families were persecuted, many of them turned away. And yet in the midst of it, Rome with its military strength, I mean, oftentimes the way that I've likened it, it's kind of like uh, Jesus was a peasant farmer in a country like Nepal, a small nation that perhaps many of us, we would think of, oh yeah, it's maybe insignificant in the world's eyes when it comes to power. And yet Jesus, if you can imagine, Jesus is like this peasant farmer in Nepal, and the United States is Rome, okay? And if you could imagine that somehow this movement's going to start from this, this peasant farmer in Nepal to somehow upend the Roman Empire, upend the United States. Like, that's really kind of the image, the drastic image that I want to present to you. And so the book of Revelation is this image that's given to John, who's exiled on Patmos. And the passage that we're going to read is actually the passage from the end of the book of Revelation that's giving this vision to a people who are being oppressed, persecuted, going through intense suffering. And the image that's given to them is this image of God and the way that he's renewing all things and restoring all things. It's this beautiful passage. So check it out. Revelation chapter 21. Look at what it says. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth in this vision. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There's all these metaphors because this is what this vision is like. Uh, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. Uh, Scholars note that there's three elements of this beautiful vision of heaven. It's people, it's a place, and there's God's presence. So it's an amazing moment. Now, again, you got to understand that the first 20 chapters of the book of Revelation is the intense difficulty and pain and suffering and hardship that the people of God are going through. And yet we finally come to this vision where, where he's giving this vision of like, hey, God's asking you to hold on because there will come a day when... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, isn't that a beautiful vision? Like if you could imagine the suffering that perhaps maybe even you are going through today. Uh, Think about the suffering of some nation, states, and people around the world that they might be going through. The wars, the bloodshed, the pain, the difficulty. 
the Mets fans who just, I'm just kidding, uh, but like, right, like there's all sorts of longing and hope. And, and this vision is basically like there's going to come a day when God is going to wipe away every tear. He will upend all the things that have been made wrong and evil and bring about, kind of usher in this kingdom of renewal, of kindness, of love, of justice, of peace, of beauty. And look at what it says. He who is seated on the throne, this is God, he says this, I am making everything new. That's where we get the word renewal from. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Now notice, God does not say, I am making all new things. See, because there's a difference. By saying, I'm making everything new, what he's saying is, everything that I had created was beautiful and good, but it's been marred, it's been broken. And I'm in the process then of that broken world, the material world that we live in, the hearts, the human hearts, which have become so decayed with self-preservation and hate and difficulty. All of that, everything in it, God is in the process of making all things new. It's not like he's just trashing what was old and then basically bringing about and creating an entirely new thing. No, he invites us into this process by which he is actually renewing all things. Now, the process of God to renew all things, this is actually something that time and time again throughout the scriptures, it comes up. So for instance, in the Hebrew scriptures, check this out, Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, It says, this is what the Lord says. Isaiah was a prophet preaching again to a group of people who are in intense suffering and difficulty. He made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Now look at what Isaiah says, and look at the words he uses. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, a new thing. That's right. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. See, this this process of making all things new, this process of continuing... And this is the hope and the promise that Christians believe in, that the world that we live in has these moments of decay, of pain, of brokenness, and God is in the process of renovation, of healing, of making all things new. In other words, this, the God of the universe is in the process of making all things new. Every single part of society, your workplace, your homes, the city, to each of us, our personal lives, our hearts, So we cling to this truth then that this is what God wants to do. He wants to make all things new. He wants to do a renewal work. If we were to point out different uh, domains of society, for instance, check out this list. There's a list of business, for instance, business and finance that some of you may work in, or a list of government, or education, or media, or religion, or arts and entertainment, or the social sector. If you could imagine, wherever your vocation, or maybe your student, each one of us is affected by these different domains. And in every single one of these domains, God wants to do the work of making all things new. He wants us to be a people then who are about renewing our workplaces, bringing with us wherever we go in our schools, our businesses, whatever it might be, kind of this aroma of what Jesus is like. Now, here's what I know, okay? Some of you are like hearing this and you're kind of like, oh, Drew, I don't know, that kind of sounds really weird. Or maybe you're not even a Christian here and you're like, ah, honestly, that reeks of this triumphalism that I've been around. Whenever Christians talk about renewing culture and renewing the world, 
They talk about it in such arrogant tones. I mean, have you ever heard that before? Maybe you came from a background where the church that you were part of, it wasn't known for being this renewing kind of agent in the neighborhood or in the place it was around, but instead it was just this huddled up group of people that really didn't make the city a better place. And maybe you've been hurt or maybe you have had this image and even today with all kind of the ways in which Christian nationalism and the, the, the thirst for power that has been wrapped up in religion has somehow gotten a hold of uh, the minds and hearts of so many in these days. And maybe you, maybe it just sounds nauseating for you, this idea of renewal. Now, here's what I want to c- contend with you. Because from the beginning, remember I told you that the early church was actually this persecuted minority. They were this no-name group that could easily have been snuffed out because Rome had all of the military strength. What's so extraordinary is that in the first three centuries, the Christian movement, again, it was these peasants, it was these nobodies, these no-names, and somehow in the midst of persecution and bloodshed and battles, the Christian movement actually grew and expanded with no social capital, with no power of their own, somehow the news of Jesus and who he is began to spread and to spread and to become known. Now, up to this point, even up to 312 AD, the Christian religion had been persecuted. In fact, the Diocletian persecution prior to 312 AD was one of the bloodiest. And in this moment, 312 AD marks a very significant moment. And if we could put up this painting, this is a painting. It's actually a fresco that's in the Vatican. And it actually depicts in 312 AD the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. It was done by Giulio Romano, who was actually one of the apprentices of Raphael, the Renaissance painter. Now, this painting, I know it might be difficult to see. In the middle, there's like this white horse, and there's someone on top of it. And that person is supposed to be the Emperor Constantine. Uh, Several years later, two different historians would remark about what was so significant, significant about this battle. Apparently what happened was either the night before and either this vision happened in the sky or this vision came to Constantine. Again, details are somewhat fuzzy. Constantine saw this image of a shield with a cross on it. Now keep in mind, up to this point, the Roman Empire is actually persecuting Christians. Christians are are no names, they're nobodies. And Constantine gets this vision of this cross. And he hears this voice in this vision. And in the, the voice basically said this. In this sign, conquer. With this sign, conquer. And the repercussions were basically, what it implies is that this battle then, as he's going about this battle to unite the Roman Empire, he goes armed with this belief that the cross, that Jesus is the one who's going to help him conquer and bring unity. And guess what happens? Constantine wins the war. He unites the Roman Empire. And now he begins to make Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. He begins this process where now we've gone from Christians being this no-name underdog who's got no chance and yet is still growing like wildfire to all of a sudden being this movement that's now associated with the highest power in the world of Rome. We call this period Christendom. Now, what's interesting about Christendom and what would happen with Christendom is some of the deepest ills of the Christian movement would be found after this moment. Why? Because now imperialism, the Crusades, all the ways in which Christians kind of thirst for power begin to to show itself, all the flaws of the human heart and that thirst for power and agency. Now, this is not to say that a lot of good things didn't come out of this because we get beautiful architecture, right? 
But what's interesting is that throughout the, the moments of the Christian movement, whenever Christianity would get too close to power, there would be these renewal movements, whether it was the Desert Fathers or whether it was the Ignatian spirituality, all these renewal movements that were trying to draw people back into the heart of what the Christian faith was about. Not about power and winning wars and bloodshed, but rather about the way of Jesus, of kindness, of a relationship with him, of a life with him. Now, Constantine, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, renewal does not equal triumphalism. But there's a thin line, isn't there, when renewal can often move over into triumphalism. When we talk about God has called us to renew all things and we look at those different domains, we can say, this is what God wants to do. And too often what happens is human ambition gets soaked into this belief that somehow, yeah, this is what God wants. He wants to conquer in his name. And yet this Jesus fellow wasn't so much into conquering. He was more into laying down his life. And so the question for each of us then, when it comes down to this, is if that's a thin line between renewal and triumphalism, how do we go about renewing the world and renewing our homes and renewing our workplaces? How do we do this without moving into triumphalism, without moving into this belief that somehow we are the best and we have to take everything over? Well, that's why we come to this story of Moses. Because if you know anything about the story of Moses, he is called to bring about renewal to an entire people group in the shadows of the Egyptian empire. But the way it happens was depicted in the scripture that was read earlier. Check this out. Look at what happens in the life of Moses. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flocks to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now I'm gonna pause right there because many of us, whether you're a Christian or you're not, maybe you've heard the name Moses before, uh, popularized through Disney or whatever else. You've heard that name. And yet here Moses, we have this image, right? Basically, he's tending the flock. He's a shepherd of Jethro, his father-in-law, who's a Midianite. He's not a Hebrew person. And what's interesting about uh, this moment is it actually comes, he's about 80 years old at this point. Now, the first 40 years of Moses' life was very different than the next 40 years of his life. See, the first 40 years of his life, if you've ever heard the story of Moses, he was placed in a basket, placed amongst the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and he was placed there and he was found. And then he was actually born and raised within the palace of Rome, or not of Rome, of Egypt, in the Pharaoh's house. So Moses was someone then for the first 40 years of his life, he's got, he's an ethnic minority, but he's got tremendous social capital. He's got access to the best education, the best money, everything, right? These first 40 years of his life. Now what happens in Moses' life is he actually encounters an Egyptian man and a Hebrew man fighting. He intervenes, and what Moses ends up doing is he ends up killing the Egyptian man and burying the man and trying to hide it. Rumors come about that Moses is this murderer. So if you can imagine, Moses, he's grown up, ethnic minority, but in a position of influence and power. He kills a man. Rumors start to spread. So what does he do? He flees. He flees, and for the next 40 years, he would take this life of anonymity in an arid desert. He would marry a Midianite, someone who's not even Hebrew, just not wanting anyone to bother him. He moves to Staten Island. He's like, I'm, I'm done. I'm like, finished with this. I, I mean, do you see his, his journey is this journey that, so we find him in this moment that we're about to read. It's so extraordinary, but you have to get, get the backdrop of where he's come from. 
He's tasted of worldly power, and he's also fled that worldly power, and he's dealt with shame. In fact, some scholars think that during that second 40 years, that he actually probably had a stroke and wasn't able to speak very well. That's why later on in the Exodus account, there's this moment where Moses says, I'm not able to speak. What am I supposed to do? He's giving every single excuse he can give to God about why he's not called to deliver the people, the Hebrew people. And scholars think that what happened was Moses probably during those latter 40 years probably had a stroke and had a speech impediment as a result. So you could imagine then that Moses is this person who's gone from great, like in the halls of power to all of a sudden being like, hey, listen, just don't anyone ever bother me. Leave me alone. I'm a shepherd just minding my own business. And it's in this context, look at what happens. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Oh, snap. His world's about to get rocked. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I'm like, Moses, don't do it, man. You want this life of anonymity? Don't do it. Don't go near that burning bush. And yet something's about to go down. Look what happens. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And look at what God tells him about the renewal work that he wants to do amongst the people. He says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers for 400 years. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You see what's happening here? God wants to do a renewal work through an entire people group. And look at how Moses responds. He's like, God said to God, who am I? Just minding my own business out here, God. Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, again, if we could put up this chart, for the first 40 years, he's lived in the annals of power. And for the second 40 years, he just wants to be anonymous. And then he has this burning bush moment. This burning bush moment that would forever change his life. But it wouldn't only change his life, it would change forever the destiny of those around him, an entire nation and people group. Now, here's what it means then as it relates to this principle of renewal. See, for any kind of renewal to happen, whether social renewal, company renewal, organizational, church renewal, it always starts, it always starts with personal renewal. It always starts with this burning bush moment for one person. To make this step, to make this declaration, to say, here I am. See, this moment of Moses on a burning bush, basically what hinges on that moment is not only his own personal life, it's the destiny of a nation. And each of us have these different moments, and the question is, will we say yes to these personal moments of renewal? You know what, what's interesting is for me, like I, two, two years ago, my wife and I were moving. And usually the, the moments when we argue the most is when we're moving. And we just have different approaches to moving. And so I'm the kind of, kind of person that when we move, I want everything packed up right away. 
And then once we settle into a place, I want everything put away right away and then put all the boxes away and we're, we're done, we're clean, we're settled. Uh, my wife is a little bit different, um, lovely, but different. And uh, so she, she, of course, you know, she likes to get used to this space first and then she wants to know where things go and that sort of thing. And so you can imagine then, so when we moved into our new place, we're trying to figure out, okay, where do things go? And I'm really Mr. Antsy person, like, hey, can we just get this done? Hey, can we do this by a certain date? I'm using, if you know anything about our discipleship pathway, we talk a lot about emotional health. I'm using every emotional health skill in the book. I'm like, honey, I'm so puzzled. What's going on right now? You know, like, I'm like, hey, can we, maybe can we agree upon, uh, for those of you who have been in some of these emotionally healthy relationships courses, can we agree upon how we're going to go about doing um, this move and stuff. And so, but meanwhile, you know, it's taking a bit longer than I would have preferred. We're starting to get into more conflict. I'm getting agitated. It's starting to leak out. So finally, I'm just like, I just need to talk to my counselor. So I'm like, okay. So I schedule this counseling session and I'm like, Ron, I like, I can't wait to talk to him. I mean, in fact, I'm envisioning how this counseling session is going to go. I was going to tell him, I'm like, Ron, we're practicing every emotionally healthy skill in the book. I'm clarifying expectations. I'm using words that uh, are uplifting and not demeaning. I'm making requests. Um, and we're coming to mutual agreement about, about dates, but it's just not working out. And so, like, meanwhile, I have this image. I'm about to go into this meeting, tell him everything. And I imagine he's basically like, Drew, wow. Gosh, it must be... Uh, you know what, get Tina in here and let's talk to her together. So it would be two against one, right? So I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do this, right? So I, I schedule this meeting with Ron. I tell him the entire situation. I'm like, Ron, you know, I, I, I lead this course called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, you know, and I've been using these really emotionally healthy relationship skills. It's still not working, though. I'm, something's, something's wrong with her. And then Ron says to me, he goes, he goes, Drew, it must be really hard for you to not be in control. And I was like, so you want me to call her and get her here right now? Because we can, we can tell her right now that she needs to change and listen. And he goes, no, 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 tell me, tell me about more about that feeling of when the boxes aren't put away and when you feel like you've kind of lost control. What is, what is that like for you? <laughs> right? I was like. <laughs> and then, of course, we explore this whole, what it, was it like for me? What is it about me that wants to be in control? What is it about me that when I get anxious and afraid, it resorts to being really petty and going overboard in my nagging? What is it about me? I mean, I just want to change everything about my wife, my kids, and everything else, and yet here I am. And See, the only way renewal works is when it happens with me. When personally I'm willing to take these burning bush moments. Now keep in mind, Moses, of course, he's tasted like the halls of power, but he's been so broken by life. Now he comes with a much different posture when he has this encounter with God. I mean, check this out. Look at what it says. God says to him this. He says, I will be with you. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. <laughs> Don't you love this? This is what you are to say to the Israelites. 
I am has sent me to you. Go to the next slide. He says, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. I mean, do you see, when, when Moses has this personal encounter, he's been so broken by life. He doesn't come with his ego frame of ambition and overarching personal ambition. He comes with this sense of like, God, I, need to de- I, I can't do this. And God's like, don't you see, I am with you. The great I am is with you. The way that God works, the way that God will bring about renewal, not only personally, but around the people that were around, it comes his way. And his way has never been about triumphalism. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he would constantly make these I am statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. There's actually this one moment in in John chapter 8 where uh, he says, before Abraham was, Abraham was a father of faith. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And then it says people wanted to stone him. The reason why they wanted to stone him in John chapter 8 is because Jesus was making this statement basically saying, like, that same God who says to to Moses, like, hey, listen, tell him I am has sent you. That same God is the same God that Jesus claims to be. Isn't that cool? There's actually this moment in John chapter 18 where Jesus actually says, they're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am he. And it says the troops, they fell back and they they fell down at his feet. It's after he says this same phrase, I am. Jesus himself was someone who was claiming to be God. And if you know anything about the great I am, see, this God is not a God who's trying to triumph over, but actually trying to serve under. In fact, that's why Jesus, the God of the universe, and this was what was so surprising to the people, is that Jesus comes as this peasant farmer, not as someone to overpower others, but to die for and to sacrificially love under. Isn't that extraordinary? This is who this Jesus is. This is who God is. And the question for me and for you is, will we respond to this God personally? Not your neighbor, not your friend, not those other people that need to change. Will you personally respond to this God? There's actually this, uh, uh, this chart I would love to show you. It's, it's a chart um, It's a discipleship chart, and if you notice at the top of it, that X, where the X is, if you could imagine that that arrow is a timeline, there's two different Greek words for time. One word is the word chronos. We get words like chronological from that. That's like sequential time that we think of. And yet there's this other word called kairos. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say kairos. Kairos is actually this word for time that's pregnant with meaning. Kairos is this moment where like somehow, like, God, like burning bush moments, that's kairos, where there's something that's about to go down in that time. You know, when I think of kairos time, it's, it's that moment when I was talking to Ron, and he's like, what's that like be, having to be in control? <sighs> it's kairos time, <laughs> right? It's those moments, the times, those moments when like this awakening is just coming to me, like, oh, wow, something's coming to me. Now, At this Kairos moment, what is God saying? Will we observe? Will we reflect? Will we discuss? And then will we respond? Will we plan? Will we account? And will we act? And the question for you and for me is these Kairos moments, these burning bushes are coming to us. In fact, today might be a burning bush moment for you. 
a moment where maybe for you, you're realizing personal renewal. I realize like I feel dry as like a brittle sponge. I just don't feel close to God at all. Maybe for you in your marriage, you realize there's some things and you realize, oh man, I, maybe it's a Kairos moment where God's coming to you. And the question is, will you listen? There's a burning bush happening because the only kind of renewal that can happen is when any one of us actually says, yep, yep, I'm ready. I'm ready for this Kairos moment. Here I am. Because check out Moses. Look at what it says in Moses. This is what happens in his story. Or rather, here is, I I love this. uh, It's a quotation from uh, a monk. And it's unknown who the author is, but I love this parable. Check it out. When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town, and as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly, I realized that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. The impact could have changed the nation, and I could indeed have changed the world. It starts with me. It starts with you. Look at how Moses responds to the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at the burning bush, God called to him and within the bush, he said, Moses, Moses, and look what Moses says. Here I am. Ready. I'm available. And a nation would forever be changed. The question for me, the question for you, the question for all of us is, are we willing to say, here I am, I'm ready? Yeah, God, here I am. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Spirit, fall afresh on me. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and the worship team come forward. Here's what I would love to do. I would love to, what if today, what if right now was your burning bush moment? What if it was your Kairos moment, this moment where for you, God is calling you to respond to him, to hear him, to not ignore him, whether it's with your relationships and the way you're going about your relationships. What if today was the day God was trying to speak to you, lovingly welcoming you, if it was today? What if it was right now? What if this was your burning bush? The question is, will you say, here I am? Yeah, God, I'm ready. Whether it's with your money or your anxiety or whatever it is, today was the day the invitation was given. Are you ready to show up? This is your moment. This is your Kairos time.